And I'll, I'll be the first to tell you, I, I don't like preparations. I just like to, I like showtime. I don't like preparation. Preparations, you know, it just gets, it gets, so many things happen during, we're, it seems like we're preparing for everything. We're preparing for her to go to college. And as you prepare for that, you got to get this, you got to get that. You got to go here. You got to do that. You got to do this. And uh, the preparations just kill you. The preparations to go to Argentina. Um, you know, we're three bags into it and we haven't even started packing our own stuff. And, uh, you know, the preparations of, of going to that and the preparations of it seems like we're preparing for everything, but we forget to prepare for what's the most important things. And we live battling. We're engaged in the battle. And I want to ask you, as we look at this, preparing our, for the battle against the world, uh, how do you prepare yourself for this? How do you prepare yourself for the battle against the devil? Well, if you remember, we studied this a while ago. Ephesians chapter 6, we're to put on what? The armor of God. What part of the armor of God? All of it. The full armor of God. But before we do that, remember what he says here. Be strong in the Lord. Strengthen yourself in the Lord. And then put on the armor. Get on the full armor and you're going to fight the devil. You're going to battle against the devil because he's going to come after you. Look at the, the next battle. If that isn't hard enough, we have the battle against the what? The flesh. One person said it well. If I can kick my number one enemy in the seat of the pants, I wouldn't be able to sit for a week. <laughs> Did you get that? <laughs> it's us. We battle ourselves. And the flesh. Wow. And so how do we prepare ourselves for the battle? What does Galatians chapter 5 say? We ought to walk in what? In the Spirit. So we do not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And so we, we walk in the Spirit. We, we depend upon the Spirit. We allow the Spirit to guide our lives. And, and as we're doing that, we're putting to death the very deeds of the flesh. And boy, let me tell you, that's a battle. And the devil's a battle. And the flesh is a battle. But I'll tell you one other battle. And I think this has gotten a lot of Christianity today. It's the world. If the devil isn't hard enough and the flesh doesn't bother us enough, we live in a fallen world. And boy, oh boy, do we fall for it. <laughs> I want to I define what worldliness is and then we're going to talk a little bit about this as we prepare for this passage. What is, what is worldliness? I like this. Worldliness is when any particular culture does whatever it does to make sin look normal. Watch this. And righteousness looks strange. Sin looks normal. And righteousness is, we're the strange ones. We're the ones that want to keep a marriage between a man and a woman. That's strange. We're the ones that want to give birth to a child rather than kill the child. We're the ones that want, don't want to make victims out of everybody in society. We're the ones that say we believe in the Bible, and that's strange. Our culture makes sin look normal and makes righteousness look strange. And we buy into it because sooner or later, we don't think about this, but sooner or later, 
the sin of the world becomes our sin and it's just normal for us to live the same thing they're living. That's worldliness. You say, what is worldliness? Look at this. I like the two goals of worldly people by Joel Beck. I never met him. This is, this is amazing. This is how it gets us. Worldliness is when we have this goal, we want to move forward rather than upward. So, so we, want, we want to get the better job and the, and the better promotion and the better this and the more money and the financial security. We want to move forward in life rather than upward in life. Instead of asking God, how can I most glorify you? That's not in our minds. We want to know how can I make the most in this life? And so we move forward. Look at another thing. This is amazing here. He says here, we live horizontal rather than vertical. You say, how do I know I'm doing that? Boy, I came across something that just pricked my heart. I mean, this is, this is crazy. You know, I kind of want to skip through this next slide, but we can't do it. I want, to, I want to show you something. How do you know if we're living horizontal rather than vertical? Watch this. This is amazing. What disturbs you the most? Let's look at a couple of things. A soul lost in hell or a scratch on your new car? <laughs> Some of these questions are going to really nail us here. We get so uptight. Oh, I'm a new guy. Oh, I can't believe it. There's people all around us going to hell and we could care less. Let's look at this next thing here. What bothers you more? What disturbs you more? Missing a worship service or missing a day's work? It's amazing how missing a day's work really bothers us. But what about being with God's people and worshiping with God's people? That should bother us too. Look at this next one. I like this one. Oh, I love this one. Look at number three here. Right up there. A sermon 10 minutes too long. <laughs> All right, now what amen so far, huh? Oh, don't worry, I'm not preaching for three weeks. I'm getting it all out today. A sermon 10 minutes long or lunch a half hour late. Right? I know there's some in here, you know, looking at it. Uh, when is he going to be done here? You know, they got the watch. Some of you got the loose watch. And so you have to put it to make sure it's right there. You know what I mean? A loose watch that people, you know what I mean? The 10 minute long. Can you believe he's going this long? I mean, come on, we're crying. I got lunch plans here. You know what? We, we spoil you here. You get out at 1115. You'll make it to lunch. Don't worry. You'll be fine here. You know, we can start service at nine if you want. But we, it disturbs us. Look at this. This, this kills us. What disturbs you most? Your Bible unopened or your newspaper unread? Or getting on the news and checking the internet. Look at this next one. Missing a good Bible study or missing your favorite TV program. All right. <laughs> this is getting hot here. Uh, how about this one? The millions who do not know Christ or your inability to keep up with your neighbors. Did you see what our neighbors got? Wow, look at that camper. I got to get that one. Look at that one. Oh, man, they got a beautiful thing on it. I got to get that one. And we're all worried about our neighbors. And we're not worried about the millions who don't know Jesus. And then, how about this one? Uh, your ties decreasing or your income decreasing. What, what bothers you more than anything else? All of a sudden, we become so horizontal. As one person said, there's some people in this world that are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. I mean, all they're thinking about is the heavenly stuff that they're no earthly good. There's other people, and I think this describes a lot of people, that are so earthly minded that they're no heavenly good. And that's what happens in worldliness. 
We become so horizontal that we miss the vertical. So he's going to encourage us here. He's going to talk to us. Notice in your Bibles here in 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. He's going to address different groups in the church. And, and really, he's talking to the whole church here. So it's not like you're not in one group. It doesn't pertain to you because these truths pertain to all of us. And before he tells us to do battle with the world, verses 15 to 17, which Lord willing, we're going to look at in the end of August, Lord willing, but we're going to look at the first verses here in 12 to 14. And how do we prepare? What truths can help us? And I want to notice, if you notice here in your Bibles, notice how he addresses each group twice. Right? He talks to little children in verse 12, and then he talks to them again in verse 13. He talks to fathers in, in verse 13, and he talks to them twice there in, in verse 14. He talks to them again. He talks to young men in verse 13, and then he talks to the young men again in verse 14. So he talks to them twice. Do you see that? But here's what's interesting. In verse 12, when he talks to the little children, he's talking to all believers. And then later in verse 13, he changes that word children to a different word to talk about the newcomers. So let's look at these groups real quick. I want to show you who they are. The little children here, in, in, in the verse here, it speaks of those who are new in Christ. The, 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 the exciting thing, the, the, the ones that the, the truths are new, their spiritual format, they lack maturity. They're new. These things are new. They read the Bible, they go, wow, I didn't see that in the Bible. That's amazing. Everything is new to them. Those are exciting people to hang around with, by the way. Everything's new. Then you got these other group, uh, the young men in the church. These are the ones that have the spiritual vitality. These are the ones that are strong. These are the ones that are really engaged in the battle. But let me give you a word of warning for young people, the, the young ones. They think they know everything. They're idealistic. And they got it all together when they don't have it all together. They'll figure it out. But these are the young ones in the church that are engaged and, and they're strong. Strong, excuse me. And then you have here, notice here, the fathers. <laughs> These are the ones that have been walking with God for a long time. Now let me tell you this. This has nothing to do with age. Okay? Because I know people, well, I'll give you two examples. Grandpa Tom and Chalmer. Grandpa Tom and Chalmer, if you put their ages together, are older than the United States. All right? <laughs> they got some years on them. But let me tell you, Chalmer, if you take Chalmer on this side, and I don't want to embarrass him too much because he may beat me up, but you take Chalmer on this side, Chalmer has been walking with the Lord many, many years and has a vibrant, amazing, he's, he's, he's been with God. Grandpa Tom, which was interesting, his walk with the Lord really started to get fervent when he met Grandma Joy, which was only about, what, 19, 20 years ago. And here's what's amazing. It's amazing what a wonderful woman can do. Really, she turned his heart and it really started living for God. But Grandpa Tom, a lot of the things were new and, and vibrant in his life, even though he was older. So this has nothing to do with age. This has to do with more with spiritual maturity. And he's, he's going to look at these people who, who, who are recent. He's going to look at these people who are young men, who are strong and engaged. He's looking at the people who know God. And he's going to tell them three wonderful truths about all believers. That's, that's amazing here. And we're going to see here. The first thing he's going to say 
is that little children, as he as he's talking to the whole church here, he says this, your sins, watch this, have been what? It doesn't get any more basic than that, does it? But here's something that we don't understand. That word forgiving is in the perfect tense in the Greek. You say, why is that important? Well, the perfect tense in the Greek means that it's something that happened in the past, but still affects you today. Yesterday we went to that youth meeting, and they had this cheese sauce. I mean, I don't know what, I don't know where you guys got that. You got to tell us what. But the cheese sauce. And I tried a little bit of it, and I went back, and I almost took the whole pot myself. And I'm eating these things, and I'm eating them. Eat. The cheese sauce is gone. But it still affects me today. Because <laughs> you wake up, and all of a sudden, you're a little bit bigger than you were the day before. And you say, why did that happen? Here's what he's saying. Your sins are gone. They are forgiven. They are released. They are sent away. And they remain gone today. And we often don't think about that. We think, well, yeah, he forgave my sins in the past, but today I got to... No, he, they're gone. What separated us from God, what separated us from one another, is gone. They're forgiven. They're released. They're done with. And here's why they're gone. Not because we're great people. Not because we've done great things. Here's why they're gone in verse 12. They're gone for His name's sake. Do you see that? They're gone for His glory. They're gone on the basis of His work. It is Jesus who went to the cross, who died for our sins, who was buried and rose again, that all who call upon Him are saved. It's for the glory of God and by the work of Jesus Christ. It's for His name's sake. I was reading about when we share a testimony, we want to make sure that people don't want our past, but they want our Savior. And really, what he's saying here is that we've been, we've been forgiven not because we've done good works. We've been forgiven because of the work of Jesus Christ. And we've been forgiven for the glory of Jesus. Why would God ever forgive people like us? It's for His glory. One of my favorite baseball players, Wade Boggs, I found out something about him I didn't know before. During the prime of his career, he had a mistress four years. And as he had this mistress, his wife found out about it and he confessed to his wife. And now they're on the Barbara Walters, they're on this show getting interviewed. And, 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 and she asked him, so let me ask you, Wade, so why did you have this mistress? Was it because you had fame? Is it because you had fortune? Is it because of the life that you were living? Is it because your wife wasn't any good? Was it because she was a good-looking woman? And you know his response was? No, none of those things. I had a mistress because I'm a sinner. <laughs> what a response. Then she looks at the wife. Did you forgive him for this? And she said... I forgave him. Barbara Walters was shocked. She goes, this can't be. How in the world can you forgive? Do you understand what he's done? Do you? No, yeah, I forgave him. Some of the most powerful words we'll ever hear is, I forgive you. And that's what the Lord has done. Past sins are gone. Present sins are gone. Future sins have been forgiven at the cross. Why? For His name's sake. Look at this. Look at this wonderful thing here. In Isaiah 43, verse 25, it says this. 
It says, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions. I love that. Wipes out your transgressions for what? For my own sake. You see that? And I will not remember your sins ever again. We hear about it and praise the Lord for that. So, so here's, here's what John's trying to say. You're going to be engaged in the world here. You're going to be battling against the world. But one truth you need to remember and never forget it, that your sins have been forgiven. They're done with. God has forgiven them for His glory and for His name's sake. Then he says, he goes on, he says something else. This is beautiful. He says, you know the Father. <laughs> Look at this verse. Verse 13, he says, I am writing to you fathers because... You know Him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And I'm writing to you, children, because you what? You know the Father. Now, now don't miss this, because guess what tense this word know is in? You ready for this? Perfect tense. And so, we knew Him in the past. And we continue to know Him today and we have abiding relationship with the Father. Now, here's the danger here. And this is amazing. J.I. Packer states this, and this is going to be a book of the month, so get ready for this one. He says, One can know a great deal about God without much knowledge of Him. Here's what he's saying. There's people in the church that could talk theology all day. They could tell you, Oh, yeah, I'm a... Five point this, and I'm a four point this, and I'm a three point this, and Christ is a propitiation. I believe in a vicarious death of Christ, and they can throw out all the theological terms, but they don't know Him. They've never had a relationship with Him because you know why? We don't know Him because we were born that way. We know Him because we were reborn that way. We are not Christians by birth, we are Christians by rebirth. There's only one person I've ever met that I know that it was a Christian when he was born, and that's my brother-in-law, because his name is Christian. Amen? <laughs> no one else is that way. No one is born knowing the Father, but the moment someone gets saved, now they know the Father. And here's what's amazing about this. One can know a great deal about God without much knowledge of Him. Look at this. This is scary. One can know a great deal about godliness without much knowledge of Him. Oh, they know they have to read the Bible, they have to pray, they have to do this, they have to do that, they have to do this, they have to do that. They know all about this stuff, but they really don't know God. And so they live their lives trying to do all these things for God, but they really don't know Him. And, and, and we have to be careful about churches saying, people, you got to do this, you got to do that, you got to do this, you got to do that, when they don't have a relationship with God. That's where it all begins. So how do we go from knowing about God to knowing God? Here's what he says here. Here's how we can turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God. We turn each truth that we learn about God into matter for meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise to God. Here's what he says. Instead of just knowing about God, sit there and meditate on who he is and praise him for who he is. You say, how practical is this? Yesterday we went to a wedding and the mother 
was as nervous as you can see. I mean, absolutely. I'm not going to be nervous at the wedding, right? Amen. Yeah, right. I mean, just absolutely nervous. So here I am as the pastor. I mean, I, I'm not nervous at all. You know, here I am as the pastor. So I, I sit there and I, I looked at it. I said, so what truth about God are you meditating on right now? She looked at me. She said, none. There's your problem. We need to be meditating upon who God is. You say, what, how do, what do we know about the Father? Look at this here. I'm going to show you a few things. Some truths about the Father that we should know. We should know that our Father loves us. I, I love that verse, 1 John 4.10. Not that we loved Him, but He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Look at this other thing. We should know that our Father listens to our prayers. You know God has cares? Do you know that? And His cares are us. It says, you're casting all your cares upon Him, for He cares for us. He listens to our prayers. You know what? Our Father gives direction and discipline. He talks about that in Hebrews chapter 12. Which person has a son that doesn't discipline his son? Our Heavenly Father, He loves us enough to discipline us and give us direction. Our Father is generous and good. Try this. I love doing this. Call somebody up when it's raining outside and say, is it raining over there? And they say, yeah, it's raining. And then just tell them, is it really raining? Wow, the Bible's true. It rains on the just and the unjust. <laughs> He's generous and good, the Bible says, to all. He gives life, breath, and guess what? All things to all people. We have a generous and good Father. And you know what else? We have a Father that's what? In control. Our God has got this. He is in control. In fact, He knows the very beginning to the end. Our Father's in control. And so here's what he's saying here. He's saying, you guys, before you engage in, in, in the warfare against the world, you have to understand, you know the Father. You know Him. And you don't just know about the Father. You know the Father. You have an intimate relationship with the Father. And you know these things that the Father is. And you meditate on them and you understand. And here's what's amazing. The longer we walk with God, the more we understand the Father and the sweeter it is. It's amazing how calm Chalmer is. Wow, man, I wish I had that for like five minutes. He knows the Father. He knows the Father all the way from the beginning. He knows the Father. And he knows truths about the Father. And he ain't worried like I, I worry about I'm worried about it. He, he knows the Father. He's been through the college years. He's been through there, you know, when they got married. He's been through now that his kids are grandparents. I can't wait for that stage, huh? He's been there. He knows the Father. We know the Father. I remember uh, Charles Spurgeon one time preached a message and he gets up and he's telling the people, oh, the father is this and the father is that and the father is this. And his grandfather gets up and he taps him on the shoulder and he goes to the congregation. He says in front of the congregation, yeah, what you just heard, you heard from him. What, what you heard from him, I've lived and seen. I know it. Wow. You know the father. But then look at the next thing he tells you here. He says, not only do you know the Father, and not only do you know you're forgiven, he says this, you're victorious. Look at this in verse 14. He says, I've written to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. And I've written to you, and now he's going to turn his attention to the young men. And here's what he's going to say about him. And this, this bothers me. You are what? Strong. Isn't it amazing 
these young guys, these cadets, they come, they got the muscles, they got the energy, right? You're strong. Some of them are. Some of them I could probably still take down, but some of them are strong. (laughs) They come in, and they know they got the muscles. I mean, they walk into the house, and they're showing it, right? They're looking at it. They got the the chest. They don't even breathe when they're in your house. (laughs) They walk around. He's even pulling up his sleeves there. He asks for the time. He has a way of giving the time, right? He's looking, he's looking down there. I'm here to tell you, enjoy it while you have it, because you're going to lose it soon. You get in your 30s, you know, you trim swim in 30, you love it, and then you get to your 40s, and you're fat, flabby in 40, and that's what happens there, and, and all of a sudden, the vitality goes away, and the strength goes away. But here's what's amazing. As believers, we don't have to worry about physical age. We don't have to worry about that stuff. It's spiritual age that matters. And here's what we should all be. We should be strong. Why? Because of the grace of the living God. Because when we are weak, we are strong. And when we're in Jesus, we are strong. And here's why we are strong. Look what it looks says in verse 14. We are strong because the Word of God, what? Abides in us. The Word of God lives in us. The Word of God is strong in us. It's what makes us strong. We're not strong because we're lifting weights. We're not strong because we can run 200 miles. We're strong because the Word of God is in us. And here's what happens. A lot of believers are weak because the Word of God is not living in them. We need to know the Bible and use the Bible. Talk about the Bible. Understand the Bible and let the Bible live in us. You say, what's the difference between a a, a good sermon and a great sermon or a good devotional and a great devotional? Here's the difference. A good sermon is something we hear and we say, wow, that was great. That was wonderful. But it does nothing to us. A great sermon is something that we hear and it changes our lives because we put it into practice. A good devotional is something, oh, we read, we liked it. A great devotional is when we take the Word of God and we apply it and it lives in us. He says, you are strong. Here's why you're strong. The Word of God abides in you. These are people who know the Bible and, and, and things happen in their lives and they quote the Scripture. They know, they know what it is. They say, wow, this is what God wants out of my life. Things that happen, adversity happens, they, they quote it, they know it. They know the Bible and they use the Bible. The Word abide is very interesting. It, it, it's living inside of us. It's there inside of us. It's alongside of us. It's not on the shelf. It's not only on Sundays, it's in our lives. That's where God's word should be. He says, you're going to gauge into the world, but I want you to know you're victorious because you're strong by the grace of God. You have the word of God abiding in you. And then he's going to say this, watch this, because who is the prince of this world? The devil himself. And he says this, you ready for it? You have overcome the what? Do I know what tense that is? Perfect tense. Isn't that beautiful? That means it happened sometime in the past. And guess what? It remains true today. Because see, the moment we get saved, we've overcome the evil one. You say, wait a minute, he's still battling. He's going to battle us. Of course he's going to battle us. But the blood of Jesus, we've overcome the evil one. You say, how have we overcome the evil one? Well, notice what one person says here. He says this. He says, when Satan accuses you of sin, here's what you ought to do. Trust in the work of Christ. 
Because he is going to accuse us of sin. He's going to bring back the old sins. He's going to talk about, he's going to try to make us feel guilty. But guess what? Jesus Christ is our advocate. Jesus Christ is our propitiation. Jesus Christ shed his blood. I'm not worried about those sins anymore. Victory. And you want to know another victory? What happens when he tempts you to sin? Turn to the very word of God. So we have the very work of Christ because of what he has done and, and that has caused us to overcome the evil one. And as, as the evil one comes back and continues to tempt us, we turn to the word of God. And as the word of God abides in us, he's no match for that. He's a snake with no fangs. He can bite all he wants. And he'll try to. But he can't touch us because of Jesus Christ. Now here's, here's what happens. Look at this. Here's something to ponder here. Our, our greatest challenge facing American evangelicals is not persecution from the world, but it's seduction from the world, by the world. Here's what's happening. And it's happening to churches, and it's happening to pastors, it's happening to leadership, it's happening to people, it's happening all over the world. Here's what's happening. Is, is that the world is starting to create the new norm. And this is what's normal. And this is what's strange. And guess what we're doing? We're buying the new norm and we're living their norm instead of God's will. It's as one person said, it's like the black hole in the galaxy. We get close enough, all of a sudden we're sucked up into it and it destroys us. And don't mess with the black hole. You get close to the black hole, it'll suck anything up, no matter how big it is, and it'll destroy it. And that's what the world has done to us. We're going to Argentina, as you know, here on Thursday. And before we left, um, we, we turned the church over to a wonderful man of God. I thought the best pastor in Argentina. He, he was the man. And uh, he started pastoring the church, and they all loved him. Of course, he was an incredible guy. And, and, and we were thankful the church was in good hands. The church was thankful that they were in good hands. Everyone was thankful. But as a few months went by, and on the ninth month, he had to make a decision. Is he going to still pastor the work, or is he going to go and just focus on making money? And as he weighed those decisions, he went before the church and he said, I'm out of here. I'm going to focus on a job. Of course, the church calls me up and says, what kind of a guy did you leave us with? <coughs> They're mad. The church is mad. People are mad. Everyone's mad. We went from being glad to mad. Well, that worked for a little bit in his life and about six, eight months ago, or even a little bit longer than that, we find out that here he is with no church, no job, no nothing. The world grabbed him, sucked him in, and destroyed him. It can do that to any one of us. And if you say, it hasn't happened to me, just look at your prayer life. If you're praying for things that are only horizontal, something is wrong. 
If your life is just worried about your job and your health and things like that, something is wrong. If you're not worried about your unsaved neighbor and people in our community and people in our lives that don't know Jesus, something is wrong. We become worldly. It's that quick and that easy. And if we're worried about what they think about, if we do something because we may be looked at as strange, then we're worldly. We're not going to fit in here. And so here's what we have to understand before we engage in the world. Here's what we have to understand. We are forgiven and praise God for that by His glory. We know the Father and we have victory because of Jesus Christ. So let's live it. And let our hearts be vertical, not horizontal. And when we see our hearts going horizontal, we say, God, please change me. My prayer life, everything's been so much about this world. Let it be about you and live for you. You say, how do I do that? Well, I'll tell you in about three weeks. All right. Because we're not there on verses 15 to 7. Beautiful verse. I can't wait to get to that passage. This was just an introduction to that one. But I don't want to go 10 minutes long because you guys will get mad. <laughs> you got lunch plans. I ain't messing with that. I'm going to pray now while I'm ahead here before I get into big trouble here. But may these truths penetrate your heart this week. Never forget, you're forgiven, you know the Father, and you have victory because of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, it's so easy for all of us, Lord, to become so horizontal thinking that we forget that life is about you and it starts with you, ends with you, and it's all about you. So God, we ask you to work in our hearts. And, and Father, I do pray that these truths would just penetrate our hearts today and we would just realize, hey, I'm forgiven. Not because of my good works, not because of the things I've done, but on the basis of Jesus Christ. That He left His glory to come to this earth and to die for us. Thank You for that. Father, thank You that we can call You Father. Not, not because we were born that way, but because we were reborn again. And now we know you, the Heavenly Father, the Good Father, the Great Father, the one who knows all our needs before we even mention them to you, the one who knows the very beginning to the end, the one who has this world under his control. We know you. Thank you for that. And thank you for the victory we have. Oh, the devil, he's a defeated foe. And yet he comes after us and accuses us and tempts us. But help us to never forget that we have the victory through the work of Christ and through the word of God. So Lord, I pray as more and more this world is trying to create the new norm that, God, that we live out your will in this world. And although they may call us strange and say we're different, it is because we are. Thank you for that. Thank you that we're pilgrims on this earth. This world is not our home. 
So help us not to try to make this world as comfortable as we can. Father, thank you for what you're doing in lives. Prepare our hearts for what we're about to hear in a few weeks through the next few verses. But help us to leave here today understanding that we're forgiven, know you, and have victory through Christ. We pray in his name and for his glory. Amen. Amen.